If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 7. We have two more uh, sermons in our summer through the Sermon on the Mount. We called it Summer on the Mount. And we have this week and then next week we're going to finish it. Um, as you're turning there, uh, let me just extend also uh, kind of in the, in, the same, in the same vein of, of announcements, just a praise report from last weekend. It was so cool to be out of the sanctuary and into the park, kind of like what Marlon was describing, and just allowing uh, our church to go out into the wild, in a sense. And really, as I stated at last week's Church in the Park, the, the great joy of that service is not only all of us being together, but also the river and the way that we get to watch God call people into his kingdom through the, the obedient act of baptism. And we got to see over 100, I don't know what the final number were, but uh, many people decided to make that proclamation, that, that public declaration to the world that they're following Jesus. So praise God for that. Some of you uh, leading up to that were probably a part of our church and listening to the, the sermons and, and getting to hear the stories that I got to hear. Some people had been waiting a long time to get baptized, and other people had chosen that day uh, without even really planning on being at the, the church in the park, but passing by, um, decided to get baptized and heard the message that was preached, the gospel that was shared. And, and so whether you've been coming here a long time and you got baptized last week, or maybe this is your first time at our church, not in the park, this is the first time in the building, grateful that you're here and grateful that you've also gone through the obedience of not just getting baptized, but also now following into the, the uh, community that Christ has called you to. And I, I lead off by, by sharing that prayer report and, and welcoming in those who have been baptized because I think it's a really appropriate message that we're going to read this morning for anyone who has decided to follow Christ, to listen to the message that we're going to read this morning. Because sometimes you, you may consider following Christ as a, as a moment of great joy that will lead to greater joy, and it's going to be easy sailing, and following Christ is going to be the end of the, the, the failures of your life and the beginning of heaven. And, you know, parts of that are true. But for those of you who were baptized last week, you already know that just in a week's time, there's some real challenges to following Christ. And I say that because Jesus wants to be very clear up front with his disciples. We see it in the Sermon on the Mount. We see other areas where the Gospels give a warning of Christ to people that are about to follow him or to people who have chosen to follow him. And he says, be warned. We're going to look at a warning this morning. One of the ways that he warns is in John chapter 16, verse 33. And if you're, if you're new to the faith, if you just got baptized your first week at church, know this promise of God. Don't be surprised when trouble comes. Just because you decided to follow Christ and just because the reality of God's love has been imparted into your heart to give you newness of life does not mean the world has stopped being fallen. The world is still a, a dark place apart from the grace of God, uh, giving common grace to all. And Jesus says to his disciples, you're still going to have trouble in this world, but take heart. As you follow Christ and you come across the, the thorns of the curse that still exist, Jesus says, take heart. No matter what the world throws at you, I've overcome. And it's a great promise to cling to as a new disciple and a great promise to be reminded of of someone who's already following Christ. The world's still crazy, but Christ has overcome. There's a warning for the outside view of the follower of Christ. The world's still crazy. This morning, we're going to look at a, an equally important warning. 
an equally important warning for those of you who are new to here and for those of us to be reminded of because what we're doing right now is actually a dangerous venture. You've decided to come to worship God, to sing his praises, to hear his word, and you're going to get the interactions in some ways with God through the vessel of man. Because throughout the recorded history of God and his people, he always sees it fit to use men and all of their fallen ways to bring glory to his own name. And we're doing that this morning. The songs were sung to God by people. And today we open his word, God's word, preached unto his glory by a man. And now the warning is this. Not only will you have trouble outside of the church, but you're also gonna have trouble inside. Because what you have confessed as you declared baptism, as you decided to follow Christ, is that there is a living God with power to save, to forgive, to make me new. And wherever there is power, there will be people who use power for an unintended purpose. It's true in all ways that you can experience a little bit of fame, a little bit of celebrity, a little bit of glory, a little bit of success. There will be those who look at the success and the power of whatever venture you can find yourself in life and make it about themselves. And Jesus says, so it is with the church. There's great power in the church. God says, I give you all authority to his disciples, the power to forgive sins according to his word and his power. He gives his disciples the power to do great things in his name for his glory. And with that power is the reality that wherever there is power, there are people who want to use it for their own reason. And so that is the warning that we're going to look at this morning. So read along with me in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. I'm actually going to start with what we talked about last weekend because I do believe that last weekend's sermon and this weekend's scripture are connected. So start with me in verse 13, where we, where, we, where we left off last week. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And now immediately Jesus is going to say, so watch out. He's talking about the reality this morning that there are two paths to your life. Last week, we, we, we looked at this caution that Jesus gives where the world, the culture says there are lots of paths to one destination. You live a good life, you'll have a good destination. Well, Jesus says there are actually only two paths, but there are two destinations. There is a broad path that will lead to destruction and there is a narrow path and it's hard, but it leads to life. And then he says, so watch out because some people are going to come on the scene with a different message. They're going to try to broaden the path or going to stand at the gate of the narrow way. And they're going to come with a message that is not actually God-glorifying, but it is self-seeking. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. It's going to happen. If not, if not maybe they may come in. It says they're, they're going to come. And here's what you're looking out for. 
And then he says something that is often read or preached with such a sobriety to it because of the, the, the heaviness of the reality that Jesus is warning every single person that claims to follow him about. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And then he's going to give a teaching that we'll save for next week about the two responses that people will have to the words of Christ. Two builders, two foundations. But today we look at this reality that Jesus says, watch out because people are going to come in my name that don't actually represent me and I want you to know how to spot them. And for those of you who've been following Christ for more than a week and even those of you who have followed just in between last Sunday and today, it will not take long for you to know that this is true. That the gathering that we're taking part in this morning has all sorts of landmines for human exaltation, for the exchange of God's glory to be given to man, and for people to be confused as a byproduct of someone else coming in, not to glorify God, but to feed themselves. Ravenous wolves, that word ravenous can be translated hungry. This is a sobering moment for all of us because we are singing songs sung by people, listening to sermons preached by people, and inviting each other into a community where there's going to be all sorts of people that will be mixed up with the temptation of the glory of God. So what do we do? This morning, I want to look at this in three ways. First, I want to look at the care of Jesus to offer the caution. And the caution that he is offering is a caution for our protection. This is for us to listen and to avoid the evil intentions of people who are coming to devour. And then he's going to offer us clarity for our confusion. I found this very helpful in my time in this passage of Scripture in preparation of today. Because whenever you have this happen in your own journey of God, where someone would come in with the name of God, with evil intentions, there will be, as a byproduct, confusion in your own heart, in your own journey. So we look for clarity, for the truth to come, as medication, as the word says, that it would wash us of the confusion that exists for all of you who know this lesson all too well. And finally, we're going to look at some questions for reflection. This is like many passages in the Sermon on the Mount, one of those mirrors to the soul where we look at it and we can't help but ask the question, what does this say about me? The warning, not all paths will lead to life, was last week. Today, the reality is this. Not all ministers are genuine and not all ministries are authentic. And yet God cautions us so that we would know how to see them out and continue to love God in spite of the failure of people. So we start with 
a caution for our protection. And, and this is not the first time in this particular Sermon of Christ where he offers a caution. Remember, earlier in our series, we looked at this very clear caution where Jesus says, beware of hypocrisy. Much of the lesson of the Sermon on the Mount is that man sees from the outside and God judges the inside. And so Jesus says, watch out that you aren't living to impress people from the view that they see of you externally while your inside is rotting away. Don't be a hypocrite. That is correction that he's offering us. It's a caution to correct us. Now we have a caution for protection. Now he's saying, watch out. Jesus, it says in 1 Peter, is the shepherd of our soul. And he's saying, I care for you and I protect the people that want to follow me. And here's how I want to protect you. There are people who are not what they appear. There are prophets. And I think a, a full understanding of the word prophet goes so far beyond the kind of the, the the cultural trend of the prophetic ministries being all about your health and prosperity and wealth, and you come to me and I'll tell you your future. Of course, the prophets of God that we read about have insight into the sovereignty of God, and they have wisdom that can, can give you an outcome if you continue the behavior. You continue to worship false idols, then this will happen. God will remove his protection over you, and people will invade, and your false idols will not protect you, and that will be your lesson. But it's also anyone who speaks as a messenger of God. The prophetic word of God is to tell you the truth and the doctrine and the heart of God for you to be blessed by. And Jesus is saying not everyone comes as a messenger actually has the right message. Look what it says in 2 Timothy. Paul writing to Timothy, warning him in a similar way. He says, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. They actually don't want it. They don't want sound truth, and they don't want sound doctrine, and they don't want to know what the authority of the word is actually doing to shape them and mold them and call them and bid them once again to die. What they're actually after is to suit their own desires. They'll gather around teachers, a great number of them, to say, that to say what their itching ears want to hear. It was true in the first church. It's true now. That sometimes people are in the pursuit of God not to be shaped by him. Not to allow him to carve away all of the flesh that has nothing to do with his will for your life. But actually just to affirm what they already believe about life and plans and godliness. And so we live in a church age where people can find their appropriate echo chamber where they'll never be challenged and they'll always be affirmed and lifted up so they can leave church with the plans they have to crush life. And you find the right teacher and where there are people with itching ears, there are teachers ready to scratch, ready to build an audience and build a following and stand to say, Never mind with a narrow gate. You can broaden this whole thing, and it'll be a lot easier for you. In Jeremiah's day, the Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. His title gives you a picture of the way that the prophets given to us in the word often are called to very challenging lives with very challenging messages. And in the days of Jeremiah, as impending invasion was looming, there were some prophets that raised up and said, don't worry about it. Don't listen to this crying prophet. Listen to the smiling prophet. Don't listen to this pro pro uh, prophet preaching a message of repentance. 
a message that would challenge your current version of the pursuit of God, listen to us and everything stays calm. And yet, they were wrong. And in our day, we have, for the itching ears of people who want their life to be as they see fit, we have prophets will rise up and say, listen to me, and your life will be just as you want it. And so the question that we start with as we consider the warning and we receive this offering from Jesus to protect our souls from failing at the next headline news of the ravenous wolf exposed, at the next time that we all have to go through the church listening as one of the elevated preachers and messengers is brought low again, is how do we figure out who's who? Well, there's one way that you can't do it, and it's part of everything we've been been growing in through this series because one way you can't figure it out is by what you can see. Look what Jesus says. Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing. They come with a message of God, they come with the title of prophet, and they come with the gentle clothing of a fellow follower of Christ. And yet inwardly they desire to devour. So reminder, Do not try to size people up. You're not a good judge. That's one of the lessons of this particular chapter, Matthew chapter 7. It actually starts out with a very simple command, judge not. And when you first look into that command of Jesus, it's clearly because we often look at people and judge way too harshly. So we get that cool picture where Jesus says, you know, before you help someone with the sawdust in their eye, you should probably take the log out of your, your eye. It's like you you judge pretty harshly for someone else, but for yourself, you're pretty merciful and gracious. How about you start with yourself and go to someone else so you can curb your harshness until you've actually experienced mercy from God. Sometimes we judge too harshly, but this is a lesson in how we judge too favorably. It's a prophet. That's all I need to know. And look at the, the robes. It's gentle, clothes of white, soft wool. Looks like a nice guy. And how many times do we have to go through the lesson where the wolf is exposed and so many people say, I never saw it coming. We judge far too favorably. You have a 45-minute glance at my life today. And yet I stand on a stage and I open the Bible, share some memory verses, sing the songs, and you size me up. You size other pastors up and you say, it must be a spiritual dude to do that. He must be really right with God to have such insight and clarity, if that's what you're thinking. (laughs) But in the reality is that you really don't know what's happening in my heart. You don't know the struggles that God is working on me to chasten me and correct me and disciple me. And so it is with the outward appearance of worship leaders and pastors and authors of book deals and huge followings online, and we think, surely this person is close to God. It's clear. Their reputation says it all. And Jesus says, don't judge on the outward because the inward is what matters. So how do you judge the inward? Well, Jesus actually gives us the answer to that as well. He says, they come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. You can't judge someone's heart, but you can judge what comes out of someone's heart. 
You can judge what is actually happening that produces the behavior of people. In the epistle of Peter, the first epistle of Peter, chapter 5, he actually gives an exhortation to elders and pastors and church leaders and anyone who is called to represent God. So I hope I'm qualifying most of you who follow Christ as ambassadors of the new creation. And he says, I got to tell you, I got to exhort you how to do this. And he gives an example in his exhortation of what not to do and what to do. And these are really good measurements of the fruit of the messenger. Judge the fruit because you don't know what the root system looks like. So here's what, what Peter says. He says, the elders who are among you, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, I exhort you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Before he even gets into the details of character and content of behavior, let's remind all of us what qualifies anyone to be inside the kingdom, representative of the new creation, the sufferings of Christ. Let it never be something that isn't part of the qualification of who you're listening to. Do they honor and receive the sufferings of Christ on their behalf so they can suffer on your behalf? And where the message of suffering is missing, the suffering pastor will probably not be seen. Where the cross is missing from someone's view of who God is and why they're accepted, the pastor picking up the cross is probably missing from the flock. He says, I'm qualified as an elder because of the witness of the sufferings in Christ, also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Oh, if we could, if we could raise up a new generation of church leaders who are living for the glory of eternity and not for the glory of the platform. The glory that will be revealed. How do we get there? Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, listen, not by compulsion, but willingly. Here's a measurement of the heart. A leader who preaches because it's part of the religious system that he has to do it. It's like, I've got to do it. This is, I wish I didn't have to. A, a, a person who lays down his life, not because he receives the free gift of God's life, about because it'd be, you know, be good for PR if I did a little bit of ribbon cutting and went to the, the elderly in care and took a picture. And I'll, I'll, I'll love you because I'm called to. But one of the fruit of an honest shepherd and an honest caretaker is that they willingly suffer on behalf of the body of Christ because of the suffering of Christ suffered for them. He says, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Don't measure the tree, measure the fruit. Is the messenger coming with a dishonest gain? Because the reality is, is that anyone that God uses is a normal person, but as soon as you get used to give God glory, you have abnormal opportunity for sin. You have an abnormal opportunity to take something that was good and mix your own glory with the glory of God. So I have an abnormal opportunity to use the word of God and somehow benefit from it. It's strange, but it's true. Greedy for gain. I could gain a bigger church, gain more followers, gain more esteem, gain more reputation, gain more money for the budget. 
There are so many motivations that have to be absolutely annihilated by the power of the Holy Spirit to separate the shepherds who are laying down the life from the shepherds that are building up their own. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And so we also repent of and caution and carefully avoid the power of the pulpit or the power of church authority as a way to control people. Do what I say. That's why you have some standing at the gate to broaden it, and now you have some standing at the narrow gate as a gatekeeper. You gotta come through me. This is the church you have to be a part of, and this is the way to know God. Everything else is dangerous. Come through me, and I will tell you everything that you need to know about how I'm gonna use your life. Peter is giving us the measurement of the fruit that we are supposed to watch out for and also the failure that we're supposed to cut off. I heard a quote that said, movements of God begin when the founders fall in love with Jesus and movements die when people fall in love with the founders. There is an absolute danger of coming to church and not worshiping God. And there is an absolute cautionary warning of falling under the authority of a pastor or a church that is not leading with the authority of the word. And so this is just a moment for, I believe every church as they go through this passage of scripture to have a, 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 a moment of humility to say, so sorry for the ways that those things happen. This is just a reality, and it hurts, and it's painful. And when you come to seek Jesus, and you find someone who is all about themselves, and you get ripped off, it is a painful experience that Jesus wants you to be covered from and cared for through. And no doubt there are people here that are feeling this message all too real. Because people will let you down and they use power for greedy gain and they use the glory of God for the glory of themselves. And for that, on behalf of Christ, the church says, sorry. May you be healed by the clarity that I hope Christ can bring this morning for anyone who's ever experienced that. Because the reality is, is when you experience someone preaching the name of Christ in a way that fully lets you down, there is confusion that will follow. You'll, you'll be confused about church and church leadership and you'll be confused about sermons and worship and you'll go through a season of hurt and pain. But I hope that we can, as it says in Ephesians, we can use the word to wash us of any way that Christ has been mixed up with wolves. Because what Christ says when wolves are exposed is that they're cut off and they have to be departed from him. They're not his. They're exposed as hypocrites and fakes. And somehow we have to separate the name of Christ used for evil gain from Christ himself. Because Peter goes on to say that when the shepherd appears, the shepherd will appear. And all other shepherds will bow at his name. So what is the clarity for any confusion that you may feel with your interaction with church leadership? or with the name of Christ in a way that is totally violating the person of Christ. For this, 
I want to re-examine, starting in verse 21. Oftentimes, in my reading of this, I've separated the, the first part of this, a warning against false prophets, and what we find in verse 21, which is a warning against Judgment Day, thinking that we're secure when we're not, as two separate warnings, and there, there's truth in that. All of us should read this with an eye for what God wants to cleanse from our hearts. But I also think that they're connected, because if you think about these people who come to the Lord on that day, which is Judgment Day, and they come to him with leadership success, they come to the Lord with things that you find mostly reserved for the offices given to us in the church for prophets and apostles and teachers and preachers. They come with success in the name of Christ that oftentimes is reserved for people who are called into the ministry, as we think of it. So they say, we, did, we prophesied in your name. A connection to the prophet. We cast out demons in your name, a connection to the power of Christ to do great things. And then it says we did many wonders in your name. Now, it's worth connecting the two because I think this is where we can find clarity for whatever way we sometimes let people get in the way of Christ. And here's the first one. It says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Now, this can be a, a moment to pause and really consider what the text is saying because we have two decisions to make or an option to how to, to read this. One is they come on judgment day and they present the Lord with a list of things that they say they did but never did, which is a possible reading of this, but I think it misses the point of what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is saying you can't actually do great things and they can't actually have power, and they can still miss the mark. Not all ministry is authentic. So hopefully, in, in one clarity for con your confusion, you may have confusion that says this. Man, I'm so confused because I I've just read the most recent headline. I just got the most recent church update, and this pastor who I thought was totally on fire for Christ based off his, his prophetic words, his amazing teaching and preaching that ministered to me for years, and now come to find out that he's a fallen pastor or leader. How do those things work? How was he able to preach with such power if he was far from God? Well, here is the clarifying truth to minister to your confusion. Number one, all truth is God's truth. The power to proclaim the gospel the truth behind the word of God that truly has the power to minister to your hearts in ways that go so far beyond my words. The power of the gospel that Paul was unashamed by is God's. Anytime you've ever had a moment with a sermon or the word and that, that moment has shaped something about your heart or your mind to give you a better understanding of God, it's because it's God's word and it's God's truth and he used a broken vessel. All of them are broken. It says in Hebrews chapter four, and we read it with a reminder that all truth, all power in preaching, all good news that you would receive as a blessing to the life and life more abundant belongs to God and not the messenger. Hebrews chapter four, the word of God is living and powerful. 
It's sharper than two, any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I have no power to preach. I have no power in the words that I share with you apart from me sharing the power of the word that comes alive like a sword through your heart. If you grow closer to God through a worship gathering, if you grow closer to God through the preaching of God's word, it's because God loves you and the power of his spirit has taken the words of man and turned them into the seeds of his gospel for your heart. All truth is God. So when you, when you see a messenger fail, you have to realize the message is still valid. When you see a prophet as a wolf, but, but still the prophecies seem, seem valid or encouraging, it's because God is sovereign. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. The narrow gate of the truth goes through Christ and Christ alone. No man comes to the Father except by me. There will be no proclaiming the name of Billy Graham or the name of the pastor of your choosing, the one who speaks to you the most with the most clear message, the most packaged sermon. There's no power in his name. It will do nothing for you. But in the name of Christ, all truth is God's truth, and the truth will set you free, not the person. Then they say, cast out demons in your name. And we have people come, and they, they come with their ministries to heal, healing ministries. Sometimes the prophetic ministries are wrapped up in the, the power to cast out demons or help you recover in an instant from an addiction. And sometimes there's, there's absolute validity in their power to do that. And then you hear that this ministry was off or the person was off. And you wonder, is this valid? Do I need to, do I need to turn in my healing and get it from someone else? All power is God's power. James chapter 5. I love this verse. It's a reminder that... People can do great things in the name of Christ regardless of who they are. James says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Isn't that simple command that James gives us through his wisdom? Gives an indicator of where the power comes from. Pray for healing. And then he says, the effective and fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much that God has given us the power of his spirit with the authority to have power for him to move in healing, in overcoming, in victory, in real life ways in our life. But it's his power. Look what James goes on to say. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. Elijah? Have you read the ministry of Elijah? Amazing miracles. The ability to speak on behalf of God to, to wipe out all of the competing prophets. A nature just like he was a person that God used. It says, Elijah prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on that land for three years and six months and then he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. What's the point that James is making? Elijah, by the power of God through prayer, had the power to shut up the, the sky and then the power to turn it back on. But it was God through Elijah. And James is saying, so pray. Seek God's power by seeking God. And when you encounter the power of God, which God wants you to experience, 
And sometimes that power will be shared with you through people who are fallen vessels and they will prove it to you. Know that it's God's power and never mix up the power of God with a person. It's all God's power. Finally, we did many wonders in your name, clarity for your confusion. Some of you heard great messages from people who were clearly flawed. Some of you experienced the ministry of victory through people who were flawed. And now we have miracles and wonders and God on display and some will come. Boasting of what they did in the name of the Lord. Some of them did miracles. So here is the final truth. For any confusion about what happens when someone presents themselves as a messenger of God and then clearly fails you. All miracles are God's miracles. In 1 Corinthians, they are having this debate. And one of the reasons Paul is writing the message to the church in Corinth is because they're really arguing over who the most powerful messenger was. Paul's like, what are you doing? Some of you say you're with me, Paul. Some say Apollo. Some say Peter. Some say Jesus. They don't even need teachers. They're just all about Christ. He says, who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And yet so often we see the increase as a reason to trust the person. Look at this church. This guy is incredible. Look at their radio ministries, like 500 countries. It's amazing. God uses some to plant and some to water. And all of the power of the increase is from God. There's another story in the Gospels in Matthew where we get this reminder of the tendency we have to mix up the power of God with the people God uses. It's in Matthew chapter 17. This is the moment that Jesus is transfigured on the mount. It's a preview of the glory of the Christ that we are going to worship for eternity. It's an amazing moment in the Gospels. I I hope for all of us to say, okay, I'm going to live for the upward prize of that. But look what happens on the way to eternity. It says, verse 1, Matthew 17, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, and they were talking with the Lord. And so Peter answered and said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. He's like, this is incredible. It's just us three. And then this, and so he says, why don't we do this? Let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It's the tendency of man to mix up the glory that is reserved for Christ alone with the precursors to Christ. Elijah is the prophet. All of the power of the display of what God is capable of, you see it in Elijah, it's like, wow, equal with Jesus. Moses is the law. He comes down with the tablets, with mighty wonders for the people of God through his staff. And so Peter, learning this lesson in real time, says, this is like the trinity of ministry right here. Got Elijah, Jesus, and Moses, and yet, what's the lesson in all of this? 
While Peter was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Listen to him. Fix your eyes on him. Look unto him, the author, the finisher of the faith, the beginning and the end. It's all Christ. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and they were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. And this is now how we take the clarity of Christ. In our moment of fear, falling on the ground because the headline is out and we're like, what is going on? The people that I was exalting to be on par with Jesus have vanished into thin air. And Christ comes up and says, rise, follow me, and look only at me, only Jesus. That is the response to the hurt and the pain that comes when one of the exalted messengers becomes on par with Jesus and then the Lord, because he is sovereign and good and never wants his glory shared with someone who will never be able to handle it, he puts them in their place and we're like, what's going on? And Jesus says, follow me. Look at me. Stop looking at the the people you think are anywhere close to my level. There is a name by which men must be saved. It is a name that will be high and lifted up and exalted once and for all. It is a name above all names. And wherever we put an Elijah or a Moses or a reverend or a pastor or a minister or an ambassador or any level, may we be brought to our knees in the fear and reverence of God and stand up and see only Jesus. I believe that is the answer for these moments when the church is brought to its knees. Arise, stand up, and look at Christ. Because in all of the ways that people are jaded and hurt and frustrated and abused and wounded by the church, it is never from Christ. It is always someone in Christ's name who has mixed up the glory of God for their own. Rise and look at Christ to bring clarity for all of the confusion of man, because God is not the author of confusion and you will never be confused because of him. May we be a church, a generation, families and believers who rise and see Christ in the midst of a culture that tries to build tabernacles for everyone but Christ. Rise and see Christ. And I hope this brings all of us to the question of reflection. Who am I? As you read this, you can't help but think, who am I, Lord? Ecclesiastes says that God has written eternity on your heart. When Jesus says, on that day, he is touching a nerve that exists in every, every single heart, whether you're a believer or not, that knows there is a day. A day that will put you at the gate of eternity where Jesus will look at you and ask you for an account. Hebrews says you've been appointed once to die and then comes judgment. And Jesus says on that day there will be a great surprise. Not everyone who says Lord, Lord will enter into the kingdom. And so we ask ourselves, who am I? Who are we? So I'll give you three questions as our questions for reflection. And in all of these, we're going to 
answer a question that has two possible answers because all of Matthew chapter 7 presents to us two ways. There is a broad way of destruction. There is a narrow way to life. There are two animals. There are sheep and there are wolves in sheep clothing. There are two trees, two different kinds of fruit. There will be two foundations that we look at next week. And in a world that says there are many ways to one destination, we say there are two ways to two destinations, and the dividing line will help you answer the question of who you are. As you ask, who am I? Ask, what path am I on? Broad towards destruction marked by easy. It is easy to have your ears itched. It is easy to fall in love with a charismatic and energetic and exciting prophet who tells you what you want to hear. But Jesus says, narrow and difficult is the path that will point you towards life. Has your decision to follow Christ today, tomorrow, with your life, cost you anything at all? Jesus says, anyone who wants to be my disciple, you'll know you're on the narrow path because you're actually picking up a cross. Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came with a sword. I separate mother from child, sister and brother. That your devotion is me and nothing else. And you know, one of the ways that that lesson culturally around the world is really made visible so that everyone knows what path you're on is through baptism. Not always the way that we get to answer that question because baptism for 21st century America is like, come on in. The water is literally warm. And yet around the world, people have to make that decision with their life in mind. The last time I was in India, I actually got to take part in a baptism of a person that was part of the caste system and coming into Christ. And it was a full display of the decision he made to take the narrow way. We went by his request at 4 a.m. said, if we come in the middle of the day, there's going to be people who try to stop this. And there's going to be people who find out about it, and I'm sure won't like it, but if you could come before the sun rises, that would be great. You'll do anything to follow Christ. As I was baptizing this last weekend, I talked to one girl, and what's your story? Why are you following Christ? She said, I just, I'm giving my whole life to Christ. And it's one of the hardest decisions I've ever made in my life. This morning, as she was going to the, the, the picnic, she said someone she loved called her and said, you're, in, you're, you're so stupid. Why would you ever live for Jesus? Why would you ever make that decision? And not all of us have had to overcome that initial objection, but I can tell you that God is calling you to live for him in a world that does not want Christ. Who are you? What path are you on? The second question you can ask is what is the fruit of the vine from the tree that you're a part of? There are two trees. There's good and there's evil. How do you know which is which? Well, what's coming out of it? And we looked at the fruit of the minister through 1 Peter in the epistle that Peter wrote. He said, hey, ministers should look this way, but there's also fruit to your life. And much of the fruit of your life is, in fact, because of the vine that you're attached to. Fruit does not lie. If you see an apple, it's an apple tree. If you see a thorn, it's a thistle. So what do you do? 
what's the fruit of your life? And know this, just as sure as all of us are on one of the two paths, all of us are tapped into one of the two trees. I heard a quote this week that said, you, in the next five years, nothing will change about your life except the people that you allow in and the books that you read. Like you are who you are, except for God surrounds you with people and you listen to the council and you listen to people and you get a, a, a version of your tribe is becoming part of you and it's the same with the books you read. And what that is saying is we are all people who are made to be influenced. You are a product of what you listen to and what you consume. So what's the, the tree that you're abiding in? I think of my own life, learning this lesson so far from trying to understand it in the concept of church, just the reality that what I consume turns into fruit of the way I think and feel about the world. There was a season in my life where I was just listening to the radio stuff, you know, like it's very common to find your radio station. Some radio stations are on the far left side of the dial and some are on the far right side of the dial and you listen to them and you're like, okay, like give me more of that. And have you found yourself in the in, in, when you get into those little echo chambers of the, of the headlines of our world and all of the things you need to be aware of and the people that are the problem, and the, the, have you noticed that the fruit of that is typically either fear, anger, or bitterness? So you want to stop being bitter, stop watching the news. Have you heard that? What you consume is measured by what it's making you to be. And what Jesus says is you want to have fruit in your life, listen to what he says in John chapter 15. I'm the vine. I'm, I'm the tree. You are the branch. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. You want the fruit of the power of the Holy Spirit given to us in that letter to Galatians that is so powerful? The fruit of the Spirit, love, self-control, long-suffering, patience, joy, you can't have the fruit of the Spirit without abiding in Christ. Who am I? Answer the question tomorrow morning when you consume what you consume. That's who you are. And then you get to measure what that consumption does to your heart and to your mind. Are you compassionate? Are you loving? Are you caring? Are you kind? Question the roots of your life. And then finally, there are two wills. Look at the indicator. Jesus says, not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does my will. He gives you the answer. You want to know who Jesus says, well done, come in? You were always with me. You listened to me. You did my will. And then he says, but I'll say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is your divide. There are two wills, to obey the perfect will of God revealed through his word, to build on the foundation of what he says, or to do whatever you want, what Jesus calls lawlessness. You're, you're not contained within the will of God. So I'm so grateful we sing this hymn, I surrender all. You want to know who, you're, who you are in this scripture? Who's the Lord of your life? Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. Or he says, why do you say you love me and then don't do what I say? Do you want to abide in the vine? One of the similes for abide is to obey. 
The fruit just does what the vine's nutrients tells it to do. And so we are with Christ. As we begin to consider everything we've been talking about this summer, this might be one of the main points. You're either living for God or you're living for yourself, and you will know that by what comes out in your pursuit of God. To do everything you do in the religious world, from charity to praying to fasting for gain, you're living for yourself and you're lawless. Or do you find reward in simply knowing and loving God? And Jesus says, I either know you or I don't. There is no way to know someone without them mutually knowing you. It doesn't happen. So God is bidding you, come know me. Come seek me. Come find my will. Be blessed by me according to my blessings. And you do that and you'll bear much fruit. I'll read one final passage of scripture to you as I hope that not only in this message, but just as a wave of the Holy Spirit's conviction and empowering of our church, that we would overcome this cultural trend of thinking that people can somehow be exalted without there being danger. There's, there's no exaltation of people that will not end with a humbling of the people who lifted them up and the person themselves. This is a message to say, look to Jesus, rise and see only Christ. And so may this last word be medicine to us as a church that we would never build our worship around people, that we would never build a mission around the ideas of man. Because this is what Paul says to the Philippians. He says, let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He didn't get the book deal. He didn't get a million followers. He didn't get a grand church building. He didn't have books written in his time. It was all to the faith and the glory of the Father. No reputation, born in a manger, died with criminals. And yet we think messengers that live the exact opposite pursuit of God somehow can speak on his behalf. Taking the form of a bondservant. May this be the measurement of what we find as representatives of Christ, not to be served, but to serve. He came to serve. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death and death on the cross. There is no gospel without a cross. And there is no cross without Christ. There is no forgiveness of sin without him becoming sin. There is no righteousness without you accepting his righteousness. And if we come on that day and say, look how religious we were. The, the messages and the, and the views and the, the reach and the missions. and the, If we come and say, Lord, look what we did. He'll say, I don't know you. All the power was mine. All the truth was mine. All the miracles were mine. Who are you? But if we come and say, Lord, I've got nothing to boast about except for this one simple thing. For some reason, you loved me and I accepted it freely. For some reason, you died for me and I accepted your forgiveness. 
And, and then you called me and said you'd use me, and I gave all glory to you because I knew that I could do nothing apart from you. You do that, and you hear, well done. We do that as a church, and we don't have to go through the pain of watching all the messengers exalted and fall. And for this reason, God gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus and Christ alone, every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God. May we all see each other in eternity, seeing nothing but Christ. May you be spared from the lies of the enemy that tells you that someone other than Christ could save you or minister to you. It's all Christ to the glory of the Father. May that be at the heart of our worship. May that be at the heart of our preaching. May that be at the heart of anything we do. And for any other thing that we mix up the glories of God with, we realize that God doesn't call the perfect, but he perfects the called. And we repent and say, God, not of us, but to you be the glory. And you do that in your life. And he who is humbled will be lifted up.